Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today, we're talking about the pending rail worker strike that could cripple the country's supply chain if workers' needs aren't met, how Joe Manchin sold out working-class West Virginians in the Inflation Reduction Act and the fight back against it, and we're getting an update on the water crisis created by neoliberalism in Jackson, Mississippi. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... There is a wave of employee organizing going on in this country, and it's hard to miss. And I think it'll be hard to stop. From Starbucks and Trader Joe's to Amazon and Chipotle and more, employees in the U.S. are realizing that they do have power when they organize and unionize. But they're also being opposed vigorously by their corporate bosses. At a Chipotle store in Augusta, Maine, employees filed a union election petition in June of this year, the first location of the fast food retail chain to do so. Chipotle's response was to close the store permanently on July 19th, right before a hearing with the National Labor Relations Board on the union election. Workers said they were blacklisted from being hired at other locations in the area, but Chipotle claimed the store was shut down due to staffing problems. They had staff. The staff simply wanted to form a union. Workers have filed unfair labor practice charges with the NLRB over the store closure. At a Petco store in Aurora Village, Washington, workers filed a petition for a union election in August of this year in an effort to become the first unionized store at the corporate pet retail chain. But they recently had to pull their petition after Petco attempted to break up the bargaining unit in their store, they claim. Petco management first tried to feel out the sentiments of workers and began to fix some underlying issues, such as the air conditioning in the store. But when the employees continued to pursue a union, management then began to cut employees' hours and pay and denied them time off. The store manager even went so far as to remove pro-union flyers because he said they violated Petco's anti-solicitation policy. They actually do not. At Starbucks, pro-union workers at more than 225 stores around the U.S. have won elections so far, but they've also filed numerous unfair labor practice charges over the company's opposition to union organizing campaigns, including claims of store closures in response to union organizing. They also claim that nearly 100 workers have been fired in retaliation for union organizing. The Guardian interviewed Tori Tambellini, a Starbucks barista in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who claims she was fired in retaliation for union organizing after she and her co-workers won their union election in May of this year, despite the company's aggressive anti-union campaign. She said it was overall a nightmare, but somehow we still prevailed and we won our election. She claimed that she was ultimately fired for time and attendance issues, but that some of the violations cited on her termination papers did not align with the hours she worked. 
She said they have just been on this scorched earth method of union busting. They're just doing literally anything in their power, whether it's illegal or not, to at least just slow down our momentum. But we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. In fact, it's helped us organize even harder and made us more motivated. Starbucks has denied all claims of retaliation and union busting and instead characterized all the firings as linked to policy violations. The company, however, lost an appeal to an NLRB order to reinstate seven workers in Memphis, Tennessee, who were fired in January of this year. Other allegations remain under review. A Starbucks spokesperson said in an email, quote, Tory and Brett, another former Starbucks employee, are no longer with Starbucks for violations of our time and attendance policies. Our partners receive training on our policies and are aware that failing to uphold them can result in termination. Starbucks has also denied that policies are enforced inconsistently or arbitrarily. But Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz has come right out and said in an interview with the New York Times in June of this year that he will not work with the newly formed union on employee benefits, which is a mandatory subject of bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act. And Workers United has previously accused Schultz of threatening a worker during a company forum, threatening to withhold benefits from workers who are organizing or who are already represented by the union, promising benefits to employees who do not organize, and saying that a union contract wouldn't improve working conditions. Well, I guess they wouldn't if he's not going to negotiate with them. Amazon warehouse workers in Albany will vote on unionization in October, even as Amazon pursues legal challenges to the Staten Island Warehouse's historic union win. Federal labor officials on Wednesday approved the election at the Albany Warehouse, and travel and lifestyle magazine company Condé Nast employees won voluntary recognition of a union on September 9th as the company agreed to unionization in response to nearly 80% of eligible employees submitting union cards. The Condé Nast union covers more than 500 U.S.-based employees at publications that include Allure, Architectural Digest, Bon Appetit, GQ, and Vogue. All of these and all other efforts by employees to unionize or strike if they don't get better pay and benefits are heroic and should be supported by everyone who believes people should be paid a decent wage and treated with dignity for their work something that tens of thousands of American rail workers haven't gotten in this country in a long time. They've gone three years without a raise amid a contract dispute with the major rail carriers. Nearly all rail employees are on call virtually around the clock, expected to report to work within 90 minutes for shifts that can last nearly 80 hours. But all major rail and freight carriers have cut staff drastically over the years. The industry has rejected their overworked employees' calls for sick leave, guaranteed time off, and a range of other improvements, even as their profit margins swelled. So unless the rail industry bosses agree to give their employees sick leave, sick leave, and affordable health care, there will be a strike come Friday. And everyone in this country will see just how important workers really are when the people who move the goods we rely on to be on the store shelves every day refuse to.
Pay all the people what they're worth. Workers of the world, unite. And those are today's talking points. You are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. As they say, I am happy to be joined by Maximilian Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of the podcast Working People, to continue talking about the pending rail worker strike that we could be seeing this Friday. Max, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me on. So this, I think, this uh, uh, pending rail workers strike uh, that could happen Friday if a deal is not made between the freight rail companies, the unions representing the tens of thousands of rail workers who have been underpaid, overworked, denied decent benefits for far too long actually happens on Friday. So Max, I would I hope you can give us a little bit of background into why this is happening, why the railroad unions uh, and the companies even are at odds with each other to the point where workers are uh, threatening a strike. So I think it's um, a great question, and I'll do my best to jam in as much context as I can. I would I would tell folks that if you want uh, deeper context um, and a lot of worker voices, um, then you should check out our reporting at the Real News Network. Uh, we've been covering the story all year, and I've spoken with a number of current and former railroad workers about all of this. So if you guys want to uh, hear more from them, definitely go check out our reporting there. Now, <clears throat> what you know to kind of like summarize what has come out of doing that reporting, you know, like I, started um, getting invested in this story back in January when I learned that 17,000 Union Railroad workers at um, BNSF Railway, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which is owned by billionaire Warren Buffett, these workers were prepared to strike over a draconian attendance policy that was being put in place at BNSF Railway. And then a U.S. District Court judge at the request of BNSF um, blocked those workers from striking on February 1st. And so, you know, that seemed like a big story to me. So, And the more that I, um, you know, investigated it, the more that I realized that this story was, you know, just the beginning of, you know, problems that have plagued the freight rail industry in this country for many years, if not decades, right? Because I was wondering, like, why would the railroads have to implement such draconian attendance policies that leave workers without a single paid sick day? Mm. That, um, you know, as workers tell me, um, they are on call 24-7 because they, and they, they don't really know what their schedule is going to be. They, they could get a call at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night saying you need to get to your terminal because your train's coming in the next hour and a half, two hours. 
So that's how these guys live their lives. And, um, you know, on top of that, they could be, you know, working, you know, weeks without a single day off because of the way that, you know, things work on the railroads. I can't go into all of that now. But essentially, like I said, when I started reporting on this, what I saw were workers who were burnt out, who were being treated with disrespect and who were being forced by these draconian attendance policies um, to, you know, always be ready to work, to have no time to really spend with family or to even have a life outside of work. They were just always at the beck and call of the railroads. So then I learned that the reason for that is because the railroads have been slashing their workforce relentlessly for the past 40 to 50 years. In 1980, there were over 500,000 employees collectively working on the railroads, and now they're less than 150. Thousand at that same time, you know, in 1980, there were around 40 Class One freight railroad carrier companies, and now there are just seven. So you had corporate consolidation taking over at the same time that these companies were slashing their workforce dramatically. And that trend has continued for a long time. People need to understand that, you know, the railroads will try to blame COVID because they're trying to cover their butts. But uh, long before COVID, since 2015, the class one freight railroads in this country have collectively laid off over 30 percent of their workforce because this has been their modus operandi. Right. You know, when when Wall Street recognized, you know, two decades or so ago that the the freight rail industry um, was ripe for, you know, an oligopoly to emerge, which is what has happened. Like the major carriers, they're not really competitors. They all have like, you know, their set territories. Um, <clears throat> and this country needs its freight rail lines. You know, a lot of shippers have no other options but to use the railroads. And so these companies can essentially charge whatever they want. And um, that's what's been happening. The prices for service have been going up while the quality of service itself and the amount of freight uh, in general that is being moved on the freight railroads has been stalling or going down for the past two decades at the same time that quality of life for workers on the railroads has been plummeting and workers have been reportedly quitting in record numbers because of these kinds of draconian attendance policies because of the understaffing that is piling more work onto fewer workers and driving folks into the ground and so the crisis is in fact already here because of what these um, you know, billionaire-owned shareholder-serving companies have been doing to the railroads themselves over these um, past decades. And so the thing that I would just kind of um, stress for people right, is that um, the reason that workers are so burnt out is because these companies have eliminated their workforce to the bare bone because they every year they want to cut their operational cost, uh, jack up their prices and thus their profits and, and, you know, increase their ability to pay out stock buybacks and shareholder dividends and so on and so forth. So what that has typically meant is slashing labor to the point that if a engineer or a conductor today, 
gets sick or has a family member who's sick and they need to take a day off work, the railroads have like cut all the reserve workers who would normally be able to step in and fill in a shift when someone has to take time off. But because of these business practices that they have been implementing for a long time, workers, um, you know, don't really have that ability. And that's why these companies um, need to install these horrific attendance policies because they don't have the reserve manpower anymore to pick up the slack in case any worker, like any human being, gets sick or has an emergency or has to take a day off. It's really, really uh, a long brewing crisis. And of course, I I suspect that the freight rail companies, the rail companies have not uh, suffered the same economic fate that their employees have suffered with the long hours and the no sick leave. I suspect, Max, that the freight rail companies have made quite literally a killing. Uh, over this period of time, even as they cut their workforce, even as their employees are being worked to the point of burnout and they can't take leave because they have none because of the company's policies, what what have the profits for these uh, rail companies looked like? You suspect correctly. Um, the profits are off the charts. I mean, they're raking in record profits, right? And and again, like this, this is um, something that's been the trend uh, that we've been seeing for a long time. You know, uh, uh, the Surface Transportation Board Chairman Martin Oberman estimated that since 2010, the Class One freight railroads have spent 46 billion dollars with a B more on stock buybacks and dividends than they've spent investing in railroad maintenance and their workers and so on and so forth. So like they have turned the railroads themselves into this, you know, ATM machine basically because again, the the railroads are essential to the supply chain. They're a vital part of the nation's infrastructure. There are even national security concerns that come into play when you're talking about the nation's railroads. That's why uh, labor relations on the railroads are not, in fact, governed by the National Labor Relations Act in this country, like most other jobs are, because a century ago, you know, workers showed that they could bring this country's economy to its knees by striking um, on the railroads. There was the Great Railroad Strike of 1922, um, the Pullman Strike of 1894, and the Great Railroad Strikes of 1877. So the establishment learned its lesson when it saw how much power workers on the railroads have, um, you know, if they in fact do strike. And so that's why the business class and the, you know, politicians who served them pushed through the railway Labor Act in 1926, which is essentially there to prevent workers uh, from striking on the railroads. That's why we've this this process um, um, has led us, you know, like in so many different directions over such a long period of time. And now we're finally at the final hurdle where a strike initiated by the unions or a lockout initiated by the carriers could actually happen. But it takes a long time to get to that point because. You know, a work stoppage or a lockout uh, on the railroads would be catastrophic 
to the economy. Um, but the point that I'm that I'm making here is that the rail carriers know this. They they know that their workforce are basically, you know, do not have the rights that um, many other workers have, like the right to actually strike. I mean, just this week, workers have been gearing up to strike for the first time since the early 90s. And yet the possibility has been looming the whole time that Congress could just rip that right away from them at the last minute and force them back to work and force them to accept a contract without even having the membership voting on it. And so this has been the ace in the pocket of the rail carriers this whole time. They they know that they can treat their workers as poorly as they want to. They can treat their customers as poorly as they want to. And that, you know, Congress and everyone in D.C. is essentially going to keep rolling over and giving them everything that they want because they're, you know, as we said about the banks um, 12 years ago, they are, quote, too big to fail. And so they've just been price gouging um, left and right. They've been increasing, you know, they've been on a stock buyback spree for, you know, long, long, long time. Um, and and, you know, railroad workers, they still make a decent amount um, because of the demands on the job, because of, you know, like what the unions that collectively represent railroad workers have been able to secure for their workforce in contract negotiations over the year. But, you know, the thing that every railroader has been telling me uh, all year and, and especially this week is that, you know, this dispute was never really about money. It was about quality of life. It was about workplace safety. It was about the working conditions that have turned the uh, what was once a good blue collar middle class um, job into a completely miserable existence that you know has led to people quitting in, in purportedly record numbers that has led to trains lying idle on railroad tracks around the country, bottlenecks in the supply chain, so on and so forth. And again, all the while, these carriers are laughing to the bank. Like they, they it's a perfect example of how corporate greed ruins everything that uh, you know we we need in this country for the sake of serving a very small group of you know profit-seeking shareholders and so on and so forth. So the rail carriers are doing just fine. <laughs> I guess I would is how I would put it. Yeah. And, you know, this sounds to me very much like the Patco strike situation of decades ago where, uh, you know, Reagan stepped in and basically destroyed uh, the Patco uh, union, uh, ended the strike by firing the workers. And, and I think it's a good example to to bring up because the Biden administration is involved in these negotiations for the very reason you just mentioned, because there is uh, this this congressional ability for, uh, you know, the strike to be stopped by act of Congress. So so what has the Biden administration come up with uh, in these negotiations, Max? So, you know, we are recording this um, as news is breaking, you know, about a new tentative deal that has been purportedly reached between the rail carriers and the unions. There's a lot that, you know, we're going to learn over the course of the next 24 hours that we don't necessarily know right now. Um, but what here's here's what I can, you know, say to folks. Um, you know, by because of the of the provisions in the Railway Labor Act. Um, that make it very, very hard for workers to reach the point of striking or carriers to reach the point legally of initiating lockouts. 
One of the provisions is that the president can, um, you know, appoint an emergency board to try to mediate between the two sides. And that's what happened in July. Biden announced a presidential emergency board. They reviewed, um, you know, the, the proposals from the unions and the rail carriers. And then the um, PEB, as it's um, shortened, uh, released its recommendations for settling the dispute in late August. Now, the carriers enthusiastically endorsed those recommendations while the workers, um, you know, have been uh, quite pissed off about, you know, like what the, the those recommendations were, because essentially what they did was they, you know, offered to throw workers more money with wage increases, but touched none of the workplace safety um, and quality of life uh, and quality of service issues that we've been talking about so far. And so, you know, that's why workers have still been prepared to strike in the past month um, because they feel that the presidential emergency board recommendations were not good enough. And, you know, this is this is like their one chance to really take a stand and get the carriers to, um, you know, actually negotiate on these these um, systemic problems that are are destroying the industry. And so that's why, you know, everyone in D.C. has been, you know, freaking out all week because they realize what how much damage, you know, work stoppage on the railroads would do to the economy, to the supply chain and most importantly, um, you know, to their polling numbers ahead of the midterm elections. So, you know, this week you have seen a, a flurry of activity um, in D.C., you know, Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, um, President Biden has reportedly been, you know, uh, uh, following quite closely the the negotiations that have been happening around the clock. And so today, um, news broke. Uh, it was, you know, Lauren Gurley and Jeff Stein at Washington Post who um, posted earlier today that a tentative deal uh, had purportedly been reached between the two sides with, you know, the input of President Biden, Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh, so on and so forth. Now, again, the details of that agreement are coming out, and I stress to folks that it is a tentative agreement, right? So this is a deal that the folks at the bargaining table have said, okay, like we can present this to our members to vote on. So the members have not voted on it yet. So they could vote it down, right? So, you know, the and we're, the deadline's going to pass in that time. So the next 24 hours are going to be very interesting. Maybe all of the unions agree to um, not go on strike until their membership has a chance to review this tentative agreement and vote on it. Um, you know, we will see. But in this tentative deal, according to, you know, again, the, the, the Washington Post, um, the big news is that it, it um, allows for voluntary assigned days off. Um, you know, it does uh, increase wages even a bit more, 24 percent wage increase um, by 2024, including an immediate 13.5 um, percent raise, $1,000 annual bonuses over five years, um, and a big sticking point for the workers – is that, you know, the Presidential Emergency Board recommendations that were released last month uncapped their um, out-of-pocket health care contributions. And that was something that workers were really, um, you know, raising the alarm about because they said, you know, this could lead to a lot of those wage gains that the raise in our salary, like that would get eaten up by right. inflation. It would get eaten up by health care costs, so on and so forth. So, 
you know, again, they've been, the bar is so low that workers have been fighting tooth and nail to get one paid sick day, right, or or even an unpaid sick day. So, like, we're we're the the issues that we're talking about are still, um, you know, widespread and dire, and the crisis on the railroads is going to persist until we actually address these serious kind of issues that led us to this point. Now, the tentative agreement that has been, um, you know, uh, reached in the past. 12 hours and that is now going to be presented to the members that could avert a strike. Um, but again, what I'm what I'm hearing just in terms of immediate reactions for folks is still a lot of disappointment. And, you know, folks are still uh, saying that they're ready to strike. So, again, we will see what happens. Um, but Biden and the Democrats and, and everyone in D.C. have been trying to kind of like reach a deal that can avert a strike. But, you know, we'll see if uh, the workers actually accept it. Yeah, I think we will probably see just how important freight workers are to all of our lives and all power to the people all the time. But we want to thank Maximilian Alvarez so much for joining me. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how Joe Manchin has sold out the working class in West Virginia yet again, but the fight back against it this time. And I'm happy to be joined by Ryan Kidweiler, organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in West Virginia. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. Really glad to have you on uh, to talk about uh, this piece you wrote in Liberation News about specifically how Manchin sells out working class Appalachians for the Mountain Valley pipeline in particular. So I'm wondering if you can give us uh, some details into the the dirty backroom deal that Manchin made or, or that the Democrats made with Joe Manchin in order for him to sign on to the Inflation Reduction Act that really threw working class Appalachians uh, in West Virginia under the bus. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act, it, it was signed um, signed by President Biden last month. And um, in this bill, there's, there's some climate measures. Um, it, it invests something like 370 um, million dollars um, towards, uh, excuse me, billion dollars um, towards, uh, you know, transition to to green energy um and in exchange for these measures um mansion like you said uh had this side deal with democratic leadership um to essentially it essentially comes in the form of a legal wish list um it has it's a list of permitting provisions um that would essentially fast track fossil fuel projects like the mountain valley pipeline in west virginia and actually at the very bottom it's a one-page deal that was released and at the very bottom of the deal it says complete the mountain valley pipeline so it explicitly calls out this pipeline um and 
it's not, it hasn't become legislation yet, so we don't know exactly what that means for the pipeline. Um, but if this goes through, I mean, it sets a precedent for fossil fuel projects moving forward. And, um, yeah, it would essentially ensure the completion of this pipeline uh, that runs through West Virginia and Virginia. And, you know, this pipeline is something that has actually been in the making for nearly a decade. This is not a new project. It was first proposed in 2014, and it's as yet unfinished. What is it about this pipeline in particular that is so critical for us to understand in regard to working class and poor communities in West Virginia that Joe Manchin has basically uh, relegated to... The, the 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 dustbin of environmental catastrophe um, in making this deal. Yeah, so so unfortunately, I mean, like you said, this was first proposed in 2014. Unfortunately, it hasn't gotten much coverage in the national media. Um, but the Mountain Valley Pipeline is a it's a 303 mile natural gas pipeline um, that travels straight down to the center of West Virginia and then into the southwest corner of Virginia. And if anyone's been to West Virginia, try to picture the landscape. It's called the mountain state for a reason. You look out and it's just endless rolling hills and mountains. Now picture a natural gas pipeline just traveling straight through that terrain. It's steep slopes up and down, very unstable. It's it's prone to landslides and mudslides and water pollution. It it crosses nearly a thousand waterways. And along that, along its path, I mean, there's hundreds of working class communities that are right in the danger zone. They've become sacrifice zones um, for this pipeline. And, you know, like I mentioned, it, it pipeline explosions, there's some, something like 80% chance that this thing's going to explode and it's running through people's backyards. In some cases, it's completely, um, you know, taking people's land. So it's not just. I mean, an environmental issue, it's obviously an environmental issue, but it's, you know, a direct danger to the communities um, that live along this uh, pipeline's path. And then there is also the issue of the Federal Environmental Regulatory Commission, which sounds like it's a commission that is pro-environment and exists to uh, uh, protect the environment, That, but they really don't. And what has their role been in already uh, victimizing working class and poor people uh, in this fight to get this pipeline uh, built? Yeah, so the Federal Environmental Regulatory Commission, um, or FERC for short, um, it regulates the MVP. It's, it's an interstate pipeline, so it's regulated by FERC. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, very pro-industry, very pro-fossil fuel. And FERC actually gave them the authority to um, use eminent domain to take people's lands for use of this pipeline um, under the guise of public interest. Um even before, even before they had all the permits secured, they still don't have all the permits secured. Um, they were able to take people's land and not even pay them up front for it. So, I mean, it's it's just another example of the system not working in the interests of the people, but working in the interests of fossil fuel companies and, and industry, um, like we see all around the country. That's wild that a federal agency just snatches people's land, doesn't pay them the value of their land. And it sounds to me like they're practically making people 
homeless, Ryan, which creates a whole nother issue. But, you know, we've been talking about Joe Manchin and uh, his uh, coal baron tendencies and the fact that he is uh, basically he's a Democrat in name only. He is quite conservative and he is certainly uh, in politics for his own and his family's own self-interest, literally sitting atop uh, a coal uh, empire in West Virginia worth billions that his family is very much involved in. So we've been talking about him for a while, and I think people have always been wondering, like, what are the people in West Virginia doing about Joe Manchin? So what are the people in West Virginia doing uh, about Joe Manchin, in particular in response to uh, his latest uh, insult uh, and injury to working class West Virginians? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I I do not like Joe Manchin. I don't <laughs> I don't know anybody that that does like Joe Manchin. I mean, we're talking about. I mean, this is a guy that blocked the child tax credit because he said that parents would spend that money on drugs. I mean, think about that. When when twenty percent of children in West Virginia live below the poverty line, that's that's insane. I, I don't like Joe Manchin, but I also. In the past few years, Joe, Joe Manchin has taken the spotlight as you know the sole the sole person blocking all of this, even moderately progressive legislation, in particular the Build Back Better. And yes, absolutely, that is the case. When we look at the current political moment, um, he is absolutely blocking this legislation. Um, but but I do want to I do want to mention I, I think that that almost simplifies um, the situation a little bit mm-hmm. and. You know, obviously, there are other members of Congress that agree with him and stand with him. Um, but I think that also ignores the fact that there is an entire, you know, political and legal system that supports Joe Manchin and and, and is designed specifically um, to encourage, you know, corruption like this, like we see in the side deal. Um, if Joe Manchin is is voted out tomorrow, let's say, the Malavai pipeline will find somebody else to funnel money to. I mean, this year alone, um, Manchin has taken over $300,000 from natural gas companies um, like the Mountain Valley Pipeline. If he goes, if he leaves tomorrow, they will find somebody else to, to funnel that money, money to. And it, you know, three hundred thousand dollars from, uh, you know, the the fossil fuel industry. I, I know for for most folks, for you and me, that's a lot of money. But for a politician, that sounds really cheap, and it just sounds like Mansion is really selling out people for absolutely cheap. Sometimes, I mean, not not that there should ever be a good amount of money that anyone should sell anyone out on. You know, so what? is the organizing like in Appalachia to fight not just this pipeline, but to fight that very political structure that is pro-coal, pro-fossil fuel industry that keeps the people in Appalachia in poverty uh, and and locks them out of living in a clean environment uh, and having a decent future for themselves and their families. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a lot of the legal, a lot of the battles we're seeing right now around the Mount Five pipeline are legal battles, um, and it, uh, they have been very successful. Like, like we mentioned in the beginning, this it was first proposed in 2014, um, and it has been delayed largely due to those on the ground efforts um, from organizations like Power, which I mentioned in my article. Um, so a lot of the battles there have been legal, um, but you know, Appalachians, we. 
we're not saying, and I, and I mentioned this in the article, we're not saying to, um, you know, take this pipeline and put it somewhere else. Um, we're saying that we don't, don't need to put it anywhere. I mean, when we're looking at a global, on the global scale, um, looking at what's going on and you know, flooding in Pakistan, displacing millions of people, um, looking at droughts and wildfire, wildfires um, in the West and the United States, um, even flooding here at home in West Virginia and Kentucky, this is the complete opposite of what we need to be doing. We need to be transitioning to clean, uh, renewable energy. And so it's really important for pipeline fires, not only in Appalachia, but all around the country and around the world to stand in solidarity and say, you know, we're not going to be, we're no longer going to be sacrifice zones like, like Appalachia has become for years. And we're not going to be sold out um, by politicians like Joe Manchin so they can, you know, make millions, billions of dollars on the backs of working class people. And, you know, in a way, Ryan, this side deal that Manchin made is actually in response to the kind of organizing that you just talked about that's actually been successful and has cost the investors of this pipeline a lot of money. So, I mean, how has the organizing that has stalled this pipeline um, really made it difficult and, and made it costly for the investors where Manchin kind of had to step in and do something to save it? Yeah, so so in 2014, the, the initial budget for this pipeline was $3.5 billion dollars. That's nearly doubled at this point to the point where investors are raising concerns. You know, they're, they're considering backing out of this deal because it's become so expensive. It's been delayed for so long, um, largely due to the, the organizing on the ground and, and those legal, you know, holdups that have been, that have tied this thing up for so long and are still tying it up. Um, you know, listeners might be familiar with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. That right. was um, a 600-mile pipeline that was set to travel through West Virginia, Virginia, and then into North Carolina. That was canceled in 2020 for the same reason, because the, the cost was just driving up so high, and investors were backing out. And it, it was looking like this could be the case for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Um, and, of course, Joe Manchin's side deal is, like you said, a direct response um, to the resistance um, in Appalachia, you know, he's clearly through this side deal trying to um, free the Mountain Valley Pipeline from this legal web, you know, um, for lack of a better word, that it's that it's found itself in. Definitely. Well, I hope you all keep that organizing up, keep running that price tag up and break the back of the pipeline, this one and all of them. But we're out of time for this segment. Want to thank Ryan Kipweiler so much for joining me. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today, we're getting an update on the water crisis created by neoliberalism in Jackson, Mississippi, and I am happy to be joined by Joshua Desmond, Operations Director for Cooperation Jackson. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you for having us. 
I am so glad that you are here to talk about what has gone on since the water crisis uh, emerged in Jackson, Mississippi. So what has what has gone on? Uh, and for people who don't know that there is a water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, what has happened? Great. I'd like to start with what's what's happened um, as it has impacted a city of about 180,000, roughly 180,000. We know that there's more families than just 180,000, but 180,000 on the books, 80% black. Um, So there has been a um, institutional um, type of of leaving behind and under-resourcing and underdeveloping of the black city. Um, and, and so what has recently happened, um, at the end of last month, there was, um, a flood that swelled, um, the Mississippi and Pearl river. Um, and so Jackson, Mississippi sits on the Pearl river and, um, our water treatment center, OB Curtis was not, equipped to take in the um, overflow of water um, and properly treat it. And so that has left um, folks um, in their communities first impacted by floodwaters, um, noting that there is uh, a need to commit to climate disaster and climate catastrophe. Um, so folks have been damaged by flood water. Again, after that, to be a most more devastating impact is the water treatment center is not able to adequately one hold water um, and two treat and clean the water. Um, so after folks have been impacted by a flood, now they are doubly impacted by by contaminated water, um, brown water. And um, initially, um, and, and I say initially because there has been a return to water pressure um, across the city, but initially folks were also impacted by the loss of water pressure. So folks were not able to adequately have water. Um, and water is a vital part of life. And so folks didn't have water. They had no water pressure, no running water. And then if they do have um, water pressure, it is still dirty. Um, Folks have shown um, brown and dirty water flowing into their homes. And so um, we know that that is because um, of a long-lasting infrastructure challenge. Um, I want to make clear that this is not... um, an issue that is all of a sudden. This is this is a institutional and consistent underdevelopment and underresourcing of the black city. And that's where I wanted to go, Joshua. Why was the water system in Jackson unable to handle this flood? What what was the problem with that? I mean, um, primarily um, the the treatment center could not treat the water, could not clean the water, as well as it had a capacity issue. Those things don't happen overnight. (laughs) Um, And so there has been, um, you know, just now decades. um, I've 
I've talked to quite a few people across the city. Um, had a conversation um, on on just yesterday, um, and I'm 35, and so someone um, a bit older than me um, in their 40s has said that they have not drank the city's water since they were 13. So there has always been a threat to our infrastructure. Um, just recently, um, in 2019 and 2020, um, there were hard freezes. Um, in the city of Jackson, still pointing towards climate disaster and climate catastrophe um, because, you know, uh, it's Mississippi, so we don't get a whole bunch of cold weather. But <laughs> the cold weather that we do get um, in the city of Jackson um, freezes the pipes. Once mm. the pipes are frozen, they are 150 years old. They burst. Now people are still losing water pressure. So what we want to be clear is that this isn't something, again, that's created overnight. This isn't an anomaly of issues. This is, again, systemic. It, it points towards um, the state recognizing that O.B. Curtis needed um, repair at the least, if not a full overhaul of the infrastructure, and not paying attention to it, not doing anything about it until it was at crisis level. And so what we're trying to make sure that we, we focus on and that is that there must be a protracted and real struggle against the state for the, the state to accept federal funding that can drop down into the municipality, give that funding to the municipality without threat, without challenge, so that the municipality can then do a full overhaul of the infrastructure. And, you know, Jackson uh, officials have been asking that of the state government to make a substantive uh, contribution to the system for decades, as you point out. But why has there been no response? I, I suspect that privatization has something to do with it. But but why has there been no response from the state government to improve, overhaul and bring up to code, really, uh, the water infrastructure in Jackson? I appreciate that in your suspicion is absolutely correct. I mean, let's make let's make no doubt about it and make it very clear and plain that one, the white Republican governor of our state has no interest in the upkeep uh, and the power of the black city. Let's also be clear that, you know, his constituents live in the county surrounding. And so um, he is more apt to to do for that constituency rather than the black city. And then let's make it even more clear that Mississippi is clear in its history of this white supremacy and and not just, you know, um, white supremacy, you know, in in blatant form, but also in the form of control. And so um, there has has been, you know, no control in the black city. There's always a push for privatization. This is not the the first time, and and the governor has mentioned that all options are now on the table, even privatization. So you want to lace the pockets of your friends and your constituents rather than empowering the black city. Um, and this has been an, in a struggle that we've been engaged with, not just over the water system, but over our education system, <laughs> over our airport. There's always the 
the the devious intent to privatize, to take, to strip the power of the black folks who run it and who are taxpaying citizens in the city of Jackson, and to take over um, our systems. And so there's always been a push for regionalization of our water system um, towards the Ross Barnett Reservoir, named after Ross Barnett, go figure. Um, And so there has been a push for regionalization already. Um, And so this is, again, the, the strategic underdevelopment until that system fails. And once the, the water system in the municipality fails, then it is easy to impose privatization. Ross Barnett, for our listeners who are not aware, was the former governor uh, governor of Mississippi from 1960 to 1964. He was a Southern Democrat who supported racial segregation. Yeah, go figure why anything would be named after him still. But that's that's the reality that many of us uh, live in in many places in this country. So. Cooperation Jackson is now engaged in, well, not now, but is engaged in a campaign called Justice for Jackson. And they are um, demanding something called a just transition. So uh, give us uh, some details about what that means in regard to uh, the water crisis in particular. Great. Thank you, Jackie, again. The the idea of Justice for Jackson, one, is to... One lead a, again a a long term protracted struggle that prevents um, measures like this moment to happen that you know equips our people to one you know have power in the municipality but also in the municipality that's threatened by power also have political alternatives. We identified that by concepts of a just transition, making sure that we transition out of extractive industries and transition out of extractive forms of power to make sure that the the people within Jackson um, have the power to, one, um, fully um, operate our our systems, our, our water system, our education system, but to move out of extractive industries that one, extract our labor, and also um, give a more frightening extent to the water crisis, not just the water crisis, but the entire climate crisis, um, because we make no no um, no frailties. We understand that moments like this moment will happen again, um, knowing that um, climate impact is real, as well as if it won't just happen in Jackson. So we want to equip Jackson and we want Jackson to be a model where um, black cities um, have real municipal power and transitioning out of those, the, the modes that lend for privatization, lend for industry that is not positive and um, lend for industry that will only one extract our bodies, extract our labor. Um, and take away from our people and bring that power back to the hands of the municipality. Absolutely. And in the meantime, certainly people in Jackson need clean water right now. So how can our listeners uh, help people in Jackson uh, receive clean water? How can we help you uh, in the effort to support the people in Jackson? 
Um, I, I would like to first note the resiliency of black folk um, in the city and how mutual aid and folks have helped each other so immediately. Organizations, not just cooperation, Jackson, but a multitude of organizations, a multitude of campaigns have definitely um, given water distributions and, and folks have thrown down nationally. Um, you can go and visit our website if you want to find out how to, to throw down more and give more um, because there is uh, a need for uh, folks needs to be met immediately and people do need clean drinking water. Folks need potable water to be able to, to, you know, clean themselves and, you know, clean their homes. Um, and so you can find those things out by visiting our website and visiting other people's websites. Um, note that there has been a lot of mutual aid and a lot of resiliency in black people to just do for ourselves and protect ourselves. We also want to point towards the future. Um, note that if we're, if we're acknowledging the climate crisis, there'll be a contradiction if we want two, three million, three million water bottles, plastic water bottles to descend upon our city that doesn't have reasonable recycling. Right. So we have to, we have to address that. Um, but we do want to build towards the future, towards water catchment towards water filtration as well. And so that requires um, levels of donation um, that, that we haven't seen before so we can build these things for ourselves. Absolutely. And you can reach out to Cooperation Jackson at cooperationjackson.org. Org. I want to thank you so much, Joshua Dedman, for joining me today for this critical update. We are out of time for this segment, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, we are back. Today is Thursday, September 15th. I, Jackie Lukman, am here. I always forget which verb I'm supposed to use when I say that. And my English teacher would be very upset with me. But anyway, I am here and I am joined in the studio today by our producer extraordinary, Joshua, Joshua Gomez. Josh, what's going on? Happy to be here, Jackie. Thanks for having me on. Ah, yes. So if, you know, I'm a little bit long winded, folks, it's because I have this crazy routine I have going on for a little while while I'm taking care of my health. So I run to the dialysis center, get my dialysis done, come back here, get to this. Yeah, it's all. So, yeah, I'm like literally like this in between. So I'm catching my breath. Um, But you know what? I'm glad that you all are here. I am glad that uh, our friends in the Rumble chat are there because, you know what, it, you can reach out and touch us here at the show in so many ways. You can call us, as always, at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. But you can also check us out on SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also 
Check us out on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But however you reach out to us and wherever you are in the world reaching out, we want to hear from you. And Josh, you know, there's so much going on uh, uh, in the news with the uh, rail worker strike that Honestly, I got to tell you, I hope it happens. I I am really, I don't know about you, but I am absolutely feeling like this country needs a really good, strong dose of everything grinding to a screeching halt because the workers have had enough. What do you think about this workers, uh, uh, this potential rail strike? You know, Jackie, I, uh, you know, to an extent, I got to agree with you. Like, I, you know, I don't think I want to see the, the country come to a screeching halt because uh, that's going to be I, mean, I think it's going to be bad for everybody, including you and me. Um, True. But it, but if it comes to it, I think that it should happen. I mean, I don't think that the rail workers should uh, accept anything less than what they're uh, demanding. Uh, right. So, like, yeah, I have a bit of a complicated view on it because, of course, I don't want to see like what economic devastation might uh, happen, but also like the, the rail workers shouldn't demand or shouldn't uh, shouldn't give in on those demands. And so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm of course I'm two minds about it. Of course, that's not a satisfying answer. But uh, yeah, I mean, if it comes down to it, they absolutely should shut the country down because uh, I mean, uh, as we were discussing with uh, Max Alvarez this morning, the last time they did that, the workers or the rather the country came to a screeching halt, and it really demonstrated the power of uh, workers. And I think. Uh, you know, maybe the Biden administration needs a, a healthy reminder as to uh, what's going on with uh, the power of workers. If, you know, the wave of uh, labor organizing across the country uh, isn't enough. I mean, we have uh, people at Amazon who are organizing. You have Starbucks workers organizing across, across the country. Hey, you even have people at Chipotle who are organizing these days. Also, some some nation to uh, uh, campaigns at uh, Target and other uh, big, uh, big chains that are just so... I don't know, ubiquitous yeah. uh, in, in American society today. So, you know, a healthy dose of, of uh, labor power may may uh, may not be necessarily the worst thing uh, that we uh, we we could get this year. Certainly not the worst thing. Maybe one of the best things we can get this year and just like really drive home the, the, the uh, issue or, and rather the power that we have as workers. Yeah, I think when we have uh, governments uh, in this country and certainly in Europe that are asking people to be willing to be a little cold to win the war in Ukraine, I think we can certainly stand to be inconvenienced. And I understand that some of those inconveniences could could be very critical if, you know, rail freight stops. Uh, that could impact a lot of things, you know, very, you know, health care, food supplies. Yeah, I, I get that. But I mean, if this government is asking people to be a little cold so that Ukraine can win the war, I think I would much rather be inconvenienced a little bit so that the rail workers of this country can get the sick leave they deserve and the pay they deserve and the quality of life 
they deserve. But you know what? We are joined by our guest. Happy to be joined by Esther Iverum, artist, author, independent journalist, and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Redditt. Mm, resistance from the nation's capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Always happy to talk to you, Jackie. So glad you are able to join us. And and I put this story at the top of the uh, uh, news run only because I, I just really want to make a point. I just really want to know what your opinions are on this. R. Kelly was convicted of six counts in federal court in Chicago uh, just yesterday uh, of multiple child pornography charges, um, accusing him of sexually abusing his 14-year-old goddaughter on video nearly 20 years ago. But jurors acquitted him of charges that he conspired with two associates to cover up the tapes and to obstruct justice in his 2008 child pornography trial in Cook County. Uh, Kelly, uh, who is 55, was found guilty of three child pornography counts and three counts of enticing minors for sex, acquitted of seven other charges, including obstruction of justice. Uh, Each of the child pornography counts carries a sentence of up to 20 years and the enticement charge each carries a sentence of up to 10 years. And this is what I really want to drive home here. R. Kelly was convicted on three or three of four counts accusing him of producing child pornography by filming himself having sex with his underage goddaughter who testified against him under the pseudonym Jane. Juror saw parts of those three videos in court. Three videos, y'all, for years, years and years, Esther. People have been defending R. Kelly, making jokes about it. He has even, you know, used part of his career to make really repulsive, repugnant songs, you know, defending himself. And when it all comes down to it, he filmed himself having sex with an underage girl, which is bad enough. It's bad enough. But it was his own goddaughter. And I I wish that this would put to rest the defense of R. Kelly among some folks. But I am really afraid that it's not going to, uh, Esther. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, this verdict and and just how you see uh, the entertainment industry, but more importantly, us folks, the, the community. Um, and our response to R. Kelly now, now that there is verifiable proof that he actually did what he's been accused of. Well, you know, that's, it, it's so complex, but in a way, like you just said, it's not because he's been convicted. But I always saw this disgusting behavior as this, this outgrowth of what was a kind of exploitation and this uh, hypersexualization of black women in music videos and by the music industry in the 80s and the 90s. And I think in the 90s, it when it was the kind of culmination of that type of video format. And you could almost think of the sex tapes as being kind of like the end game, right? Mm. So not only do you see, you know, barely, uh, almost naked, you know, young, very beautiful black women 
you know, scantily clad, you know, dancing, grinding, <laughs> doing whatever kind of dances on these kind of hip hop era, you know, mu- you know, music videos. But then these these videos by R. Kelly, which were circulated, uh, you know, the, they had the end game of of one of these young women, you know, actually involved in a sex act. And so I think that along with this hypersexualization, there was a cheapening of the uh, the lives of Black women, the bodily autonomy of Black women, uh, just the idea that, you know, these women who were frequently called out of their name, and you know what I mean, right? In that environment, um, kind of were there to be sexualized, be, you know, to have sex with, to uh, be, like, that's what their purpose was. So I think that the the people who defended him, it was almost as if uh, some of them were saying, well, you know, she was part of it too. You know, she asked for it. She agreed to be in this video. And, you know, the thing is, even if they are right, even if they believe that this young woman was fast as we call her, she's fast. Uh, uh, the law says that, you know, sex with someone who is a minor, and that I think it may vary from state to state in terms of the age, whether it's 16 or 18 or whatever. I think in Pennsylvania it was 18. You know, I was growing up. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if that person, con- you know, consented or whatever. It's a crime. It's, it's statutory rape. It's, it's uh, sexual assault or whatever the crime is in that state. And so I think that that's a part of it. I think it was a part of the the way that people wanted to view um, this young woman, young woman as part of uh, what was a very hypersexualized culture at that time. Very, I think, very exploitative um, culture at that time. Even though I remember having discussions, you know, because I was covering culture at that time in corporate media, having you know um, conversations with people saying, "Well, you know, I think it's it's a way of showing these women as beautiful. I think it's it's showing these women in another way." other than the kind of, you know, towel on the head or, you know, Miss Jane Pittman or whatever kind of way that, you know, black women were seen, you know, like a mammy figure and kind of like anti-mammy, right? Um, but, you know, this was just a new uh, version of, I don't know, Sapphire or, <laughs> you know, somebody else. Um, and so I think that that's, that's what I get out of it. And um, but on the, you know, and I, I definitely agree that if he did these things, he deserves to be, he deserves to be convicted. He deserves to be in prison. But Jackie, what's happening is that this sorted trial is taking place in a, a larger theater where, you know, we know that billionaires, uh, people who hung out with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, public officials whose names, uh, are bandied about, but, you know, they're not facing any, charges or investigations for uh, what they may have done with Jeffrey Epstein. You know, he's dead, you know, under suspicious circumstances, right? And, um, you know, Prince Andrew, who I think had to pay off uh, some type of settlement because he was involved in the uh, sexual exploitation of a young woman who I think may have been underage also. You know, he's, he's, you know, with the royal family now, you know, in line to have certain royal duties and, you know, in the, the with the royal family that is being, you know, uh, feted and 
you know, put in the spotlight right now because of the death of the queen. So uh, this is, it's, it's just put in this larger context of things that we talk about. You know, what is a crime? What is a crime against humanity? You know, what, why are certain crimes against us, against the Palestinians, against people in Yemen? You know, why are these not crimes against humanity? Why isn't what's happening to the Palestinians genocide? So when, when I put it in this larger context of what a crime is and how even something like this, um, as genuine as it is, as, as much of a crime as it is, seems to be being put into this larger theater of, of what gets counted as a crime. Who gets prosecuted for what? When you know that there's so many criminals out here um, doing far worse you know, you know, trafficking women um, and girls. You know, um, I saw uh, stories where they said that the CIA had, they knew that their officers, uh, former officers or current officers, current at that time, had, had, had um, uh, sexually abused and raped young girls, children. One was young as two years old, but they were just fired. They were never, they were never uh, prosecuted. So you have the, just this mass, um, exploitation and this, um, the way that capitalism makes everything a commodity, and especially the bodies of black and brown girls and women, a commodity and, you know, a throwaway commodity. And so when I look at it in that larger context, I know that, uh, that Robert um, R. Kelly is a criminal, but I know that there's so many other criminals out here. Yeah, definitely true. And, you know, we have to always keep in mind that while we, you know, we do have to hold people from our community accountable for the crimes they commit, particularly against the vulnerable. I mean, I think this is something that we need to get straight, that I think is clear that America in general, this country in general, is not clear on the fact that women are human beings, children uh, are not in a position where they can give consent, certainly not to uh, a sex act, for, uh, uh, you know, and and that they need to be protected. But it's 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 interesting when you look at the way the United States, the system handles these kinds of cases, um, uh, um, uh, Esther, when. When this country, I, I don't think they've, I still don't think they've signed the uh, United Nations uh, Declaration for, uh, you know, human rights for children. So it's, you know, when you throw in the white supremacy, you throw in the capitalism and the fact that rich people, some rich people can get away with sometimes murder, some sometimes or crimes leading up to it. Um, and you, you realize that you have a system that is never going to prosecute crimes against vul- the vulnerable in this society equally or evenly, even as it's a good thing that. Uh, R. Kelly, the uh, pedophile and predator, uh, has been taken to account. Right. And, you know, when you were speaking, it just reminded me of all the the, the reporting that I've read, just the research, the work by historians that always reminded me that for centuries it was OK to rape a black girl, that it was legal that it was not a crime. And, and, you know, it's something that I come back to time and time again in my work because I think that when you talk about the society having a rape culture, you know, right, and 
And it's interesting how it always comes up in the context of black men when they were not, you know, they were not the ones that, that started the rape culture. You know, the rape culture started because, you know, when black people were enslaved here, that it was legal. It was legal for uh, black girls and black women to be raped. And I remember, I remember when uh, I was doing researching for another show, uh, coming across the story of a man who was uh, the really the largest uh, slave trader and trafficker in the United States, and how we don't know his name. And mm. I, as I'm talking, I'm seeing if I can find it. But the the idea that they found these letters. Uh, correspondence between him and his business partner, and they were boasting about how they raped these black women, <laughs> these African women, because it was just part of the work, you know, that they en- that they they enjoyed that, and they 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 laughed about it, they joked about it, they they talked about, well, she's ruined now, you know, or she's she's been used, you know, and and just to hear this kind of vile. Uh, you know, discussion and ideas being, you know, floated back and forth between these rapists, these predators, and, you know, and realizing that what they did was perfectly legal, you know. And so when you talk about situations of how uh, uh, black women, uh, brown women, women of color around the world, around the global South have been so, uh, uh, our, our, our lives, our bodies, our children have been so grinded up into this, you know, imperialist machine that makes everything a commodity, you know, then, you know, I put it in that context. And I don't really think of it as, you know, R. Kelly, you know, by itself, this case. And certainly, you know, he's a monster in his own way, you know, but I'm just living in a world of, of this kind of where these monsters have been created. Absolutely. And just for an update, uh, sadly for the nation or thankfully, uh, the the rail strike has been averted. Uh, there has been a tentative uh, deal reached. Uh, the Biden administration is taking a victory lap uh, as they avert uh, a rail strike that would have happened if a deal had not been reached today. Uh, they call it a win for tens of thousands of rail workers and for their dignity. Uh, I hope so, because if not, uh, get back into the streets. But we're going to uh, take a quick break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Esther Iverum. And Esther... I have been following this story out of Mississippi. Talk about how rich people get away with uh, stuff, (laughs) leading uh, every crime, leading almost up to murder. Um, Aside from the the human rights 
violation that is happening with the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, in a court case <laughs> that is revealing that text messages from NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre shows that he was much more involved than previously known than he previously admitted publicly in pushing for millions of federal welfare dollars to be diverted from helping poor families to instead pay for a new volleyball facility at the school where his daughter played the sport. Now, first of all, I didn't know that there was anything like a volleyball facility. I just thought it was the gym with a net in the middle of it. But, you know, that's a whole this is a whole nother world for me. Um, But the text messages reveal that Brett Favre sought reassurances from a nonprofit executive that the public would never learn that he was seeking millions of dollars in grants that ultimately came from the Mississippi Welfare Agency. See, Brett Favre, Mr. Uh, uh, Apple Pie, hardworking football icon, said publicly that he didn't know the funds were welfare dollars and that he believed he did nothing wrong. He had paid back the $1.1 million that was given to him directly, but the state auditor says that he still owes $228,000 in interest. The text messages reveal otherwise he knew he knew. I mean, (laughs) Esther. This, you know, this Mississippi, whether we were talking about that town, the last time we spoke, uh, the town where, you know, the police officers, he was fired for, you know, boasting about. Oh, that's right. And he's still riding around in the police car after he was fired. Now you have, you know, how many million people, how many people impacted by this Jackson water crisis? And now the state, we find out, paid millions to build, took money that was supposed to be for the poorest people in the one of the poorest states in the country and gave it to one of the richest men in the state, Brett Favre, to build a volleyball facility. Now, the fact that he... The, the, these new text messages reveal that he did not want anyone to know what he was doing shows he knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. He knew where that money was coming from. He he wanted to say, oh, I didn't know it was welfare money. It doesn't matter if it was welfare money or not. It's money for the state. It's not for a volleyball, uh, uh, a pricey volleyball facility. It's for poor people in the state. So this is just you know, as we are, you know, trying to unravel this longstanding crime that is being perpetrated in Jackson, to know that millions of dollars were diverted by the state that has a historical hostility toward democratic rights for black people, you know, toward democratic rights for uh, uh Poor people in the state. This is just outrageous. I mean, uh, I listened to the National Town Hall uh, on Jackson on Tuesday night, uh, uh, run by the Poor People's Campaign. And it's interesting because I was waiting for somebody to bring up this scandal. And maybe because they wanted to just keep their eye on the ball and keep it on the residents who testified, they didn't bring it up. But what's being 
what is being brought up or hinted at are new lawsuits that really pertain to the equal protection under the law, under the law, equal protection. And this is this scandal with Favre is just another example of how there's no equal protection for people, especially black people in Mississippi. And, you know, I don't know whether, uh, the, the, well, I, I read about the beginnings of this, but there's just no equal protection when you can have a scandal like this go on and, and only now, it's only now coming to light. You know, you said a word right there, Esther, because if you or I had done something it, in a, a fraction, a fraction of uh, a something like this that that involved a fraction of the kind of money, let us cheat on our taxes. The IRS would be at our doorstep. Those new IRS agents that are being hired to to go after so-called to go after the the rich. Uh, a tax cheats. Yeah, they're not really going to be going after any rich people. They're going to be coming after middle class, uh, uh, working class Americans who are trying to squeeze out a little extra something in our refund. I mean, that's what those officers, those additional IRS agents are really for. We know what would happen to regular folks if we don't pay our parking tickets. We can't get our license renewed. You know, we, we get our licenses snatched. Brett Favre, who throughout his career was paid an estimated $140 million, did not need to ask anybody for money to, to build this volleyball stadium. The, the stadium was uh, purported to be uh, to estimate around $4 million to build, and they weren't sure if that was enough money. But he had that. That was pocket change. That was literally Brett Favre's, you know, it, it, it was his couch cushion money, just, just change laying around. But what does he do instead? He cooks up a plan with the actual head of the uh, Mississippi Welfare Agency, the Department of Human Services, to divert money from DHS, money that would have gone to TANF benefits, food stamps, money for poor people to build a volleyball stadium at the college where his daughter plays volleyball. This man had that $4 million a hundred times over. Is he in jail? No. He got to pay back that $1.1 million that he was paid. And now they're after the 200 or some odd thousand dollars in interest. But Esther, I, I, do we expect that Favre is going to see any jail town in any jail time? Do we expect that the the head of the Mississippi Department of uh, uh, Human Services, uh, Nancy, what is her name? Nancy New? It, I, don't, I don't know if she still has a job, but I, do you think anybody's going to jail for this massive fraud and literal theft from poor people in Mississippi? Well, I don't see any criminal charges being filed in reference to this lawsuit, right? Uh, this is it's interesting because I, I believe that it's new, this, this, uh, this administrator of this, you know, welfare organization that actually blew the whistle because she was about to take the fall for this. Wow. And I think she's, 
she decided that, okay, no, if I'm going down, I'm going to take some other people with me because she was directed by the then governor, former governor, not the current one, uh, to, to actually set this, set up this scheme. And so when, when it was found out and these funds were diverted, she was, her, her head was on the chopping block and she said, oh no, okay, if I'm going down, I'm taking them down with me. So she's through a reporter, I believe a local reporter in Mississippi is the one who, through good reporting, found uh, this information in court filings by uh, Ms. New. And so that is how this story came out. And uh, these text messages came to light after that, uh, more text messages that are so damning. So I don't, I don't know that any uh, criminal charges have been filed, but, but your point is, is, is this, is the same. It's, it's what we're talking about, even with the R. Kelly case. We're talking about two different standards for justice so that the, there is no justice, right? So if 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 somebody just... Um, I remember a story, a terrible story a few months ago about a woman whose partner had died, and I guess they weren't married, and um, she kept... Uh, the Social Security check kept coming to the house, mm-hmm. and so she cashed the check and was living like she's always been living. It's not like it was a whole lot of money, but it was their income. And somehow the government came after her and said she had to pay back all that money. And, you know, that's all she had. So she had no money to pay it back. You know, how about the people accused of of welfare fraud because they, you know, they let somebody use their food stamp. Right. Or... You know, they they got a little bit too much aid and then they want to they want to take it back. Or how about all the people who were just swindled in the scheme uh, by Ron DeSantis because they went to vote and really because the state told them that they could vote. And then when they showed up to vote, Ron DeSantis said, oh, see, you're committing voter fraud. You're a formerly incarcerated person and you can't vote. So there there are people right now in jail for trying to vote. Right. And a lot of these people are in the South. They're in Florida. They're in Texas, probably in Mississippi, too. Right. And these are these are places that are trying to hyper criminalize things like voting and, you know, uh, your democratic rights, uh, having an abortion, having a right to have choice. But these people can steal, rape. <laughs> they can do whatever. And we, we, we have we can cite case after case including this one. And no, do you hear any uh, criminal charges being filed? Nope. I, I did not read in that article that there are criminal charges being filed. It's a civil case. You know, Brett Favre um, will get off with paying back uh, the the money he was paid directly. Um, and probably he'll have to pay, you know, that interest. But, you know, I, I doubt that there will even be an asterisk by that dude's name uh, in, in any sports, anything, because, you know, what he did stealing from poor people in Mississippi, um, that didn't have anything to do with football. This is something else that we do in this country that is really, I think, fascinating. We 
we have this bizarre ability to compartmentalize the crimes of rich people when they do something that is outside of what made them rich and famous. But we somehow cannot do that with regular folks. Like when you talk about the lady who who uh, kept cashing the Social Security checks of her deceased partner so she could continue to live because it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, the the fact that the system failed and and did not know. And trust me, y'all, Social Security knows when someone is deceased. I'm here to tell you they sent me a letter letting me know that they knew that <laughs> Abdus was deceased and that I had better not cash that next uh, a Social Security, a disability check uh, that that he received. So, I mean, how do you how do you see that, uh, Esther, the way we we are we compartmentalize the crimes of the rich and and famous in this country and we can separate them, their misdeeds when they absolutely violate the rights of other people, particularly poor people in this case with Brett Favre. This this man knew what he was doing, took the money, made sure, wanted to make sure that nobody would know that he was stealing from poor people. And somehow I just feel like this is never going to be brought up in any NFL anything when this man's name is mentioned. Well, you know, they, they are what I'm not sure if if in this type of case, they are following the lead of what the United States government does and these uh, imperialists around the world or whether imperialists are following the lead of their masters, the ruling class. Because, you know, I've been thinking about how there must be some kind of mental illness, really. If you think that uh, those of us uh, who hail, whose ancestry is from the global south, we don't see the difference in how even even for example how the the coverage of the the queen is handled okay mm. mm-hmm. that we see just even in that example right that i think a lot has to be credited to the uprising against racism 2 years ago because it it educated the whole globe at the at the same time i mean it just spread all over the world to be educated about what colonialism and slavery and what imperialism is and, you know, and how it's not a past thing. It's something ongoing in terms of how the past informs the present, how Africa, Asia, Latin America, our wealth, our resources, the the labor, the enslaved labor built Europe, built the United States. And so, um, you know, I think that, that getting back to the whole idea of schizophrenia, I think there's some kind of mental illness if you think that uh, it's so it's that you, we're supposed to have a certain amount of um, grief and you know gnashing of teeth around what's happening in Ukraine or whatever. But you are seeing every day Palestinians being murdered, children being tortured, t- children in Yemen starving to death. You know, I don't even know what the total number is. It's up near 400,000 dead after this this genocide, this ongoing genocide there. So I don't know if 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 people involved in a case like this with Brett Favre are taking the lead from what's happening internationally or whether it's vice versa. 
But all I know is that there's a universal uh, double standard, a criminal double standard in terms of what a crime is and what a crime against a human being is. And we're supposed to ignore or um, what I what I've started to call um, just um, uh, erase. We're supposed to erase uh, Yemeni people. We're supposed to erase Palestinians. We're supposed to erase the six million plus you know dead in the Congo. Uh, we're supposed to erase uh, all of these people, fellow human beings, um, because they aren't within the uh, European one percent billionaire class and uh and or you know they're not european at all or euro-american or um you know they don't fall within the the frame of corporate media to make them like human you know to, to have them count as human beings so what we're talking about is really very serious and it's really very dangerous you know it's just that when we look at a, a case like this with brett Favre, it's you know, it's it's ridiculous, so ridiculous, we have to kind of laugh, but it's almost kind of like the laugh to keep from crying. Absolutely. And we're going to move to another quick break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Esther Iverum. And Esther, uh, I just wanted to make a note really quick that uh, M. Craig... Zero uh, one in the chat. Shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Appreciate you all so much. Uh, uh, noted that John Armfeld was the slave trader that you were talking about, who was the most prolific slave trader in the U.S. at one time. And you raised the issue of Palestinians uh, a couple of times. And that's where I wanted to go next, because uh, Israeli forces uh, are are actually forcing Palestinians to demolish their own homes in in Jerusalem. Uh, The Israeli authorities forced, uh, and this is just the latest incident, a Palestinian resident of Jerusalem on Sunday to demolish her home in Batan al-Hawa in the village of Silwan. Uh, Speaking to the new Arab, uh, Nisreen Taye, a single mother of four, a single mother of four children said that the Israeli municipality in Jerusalem forced her to demolish her house under the pretext that it was built without a permit. She said, they, the Israelis, claim that my house is located in Area C, which is under full Israeli control. She said, I was forced to demolish my house by myself to avoid paying fines and prohibitive demolition fees set by the municipality. She said, I do not know where I should live with my four orphaned kids. There's a there's a question right there. Why are her children orphaned? We do not have an alternate house. 
I, I'm sorry, an alternative house. A couple of things in there um, that are just horribly, horribly repulsive to me. The fact that uh, the Israeli authorities would make Palestinians demolish their own homes. And if they don't, they will levy uh, massive fines uh, and fees for the Israeli authorities to demolish the house themselves. And if they don't pay the fees and if they don't pay the fines, then they go to jail. So people in Palestine are being terrorized by yet another way, uh, um, Esther. And and I, I honestly thought that the crimes against humanity that the Israeli government could not get more uh, vile and and un uh, and inhuman, but this this practice, I think, this I, I don't I don't I don't know that they can get lower than this, Esther. Yeah, I I had to, you know, almost sit up and take note when I saw that story because we just came out of a period where Israel attacked Gaza, you know, killing, I think, up to 50 people, uh, you know, I, I think two dozen children. I, I may not have the exact figure, but... Um, a, uh, a huge number of children. And, you know, just like here, when we, we talk about um, you know, police murders and how the Palestinian, you know, freedom movement and the, the Black Lives Matter movement here, the movement for Black Lives, almost became joined in terms of understanding the the nature and the violence of of is militarized police forces and the tear gas and the and the the ways that people try to stand up to the police and to let it be known that they were not going to just lay down and take this type of of assault and this terror in the community and you know we don't have here uh, people demolishing our homes but um, you know we could we could talk about you know, what we do have instead mm-hmm. another time. But in Palestine, this home demolition has been the main way to continue to forcibly displace the indigenous Palestinian people in Palestine. And I'm looking at uh, a report or information from the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions they say that since 1967, Israel has demolished more than 26,000 Palestinian-owned structures in the occupied Palestinian territory. And then um, then they updated, and then they said that 48,000 Palestinian structures had been demolished since 1967, based on information collected from the Israeli Ministry of Interior, the Jerusalem Jerusalem municipality, the civil administration, UN bodies, and agencies. And, uh, and of course, there are some Palestinian sources also. And then they say that they, they divide these demolitions into three types, punitive demolitions, administrative demolitions, and military land-clearing demolitions. And so this 
practice is very much related to not only displacing Palestinians, but creating these this space um, for these illegal Israeli settlements. Uh, last year, you know, we uh, there was a lot of attention p- paid globally to the attempt to evict uh, families from, you know, it, uh, Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and how people were coming from the United States and, and Europe, you know, uh, claiming Israeli citizenship and claiming that this property belonged to them. And so this type of criminal uh, behavior is just one way that they are attempting to, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, people call it ethnic cleansing, um, they're trying to, in this what has been declared an Israeli state, uh, make it a place for uh, just Jewish people, or no, a Jewish state, make it a place for just Jewish people. But you can't do that on top of a population, an indigenous population that is the majority. So with this type of displacement, um, what is the genocide ongoing in Gaza, they're basically trying to to uh, what they call mow the grass, what they call, uh, which basically means murder and and kill and displace people. And, you know, it's just part of the same crime against humanity. That's what I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about all these other cases. These are things ongoing, and, and it's up to us as journalists to highlight these cases and point out the hypocrisy and the contradictions of what you want to call crimes in one place and, and very often these crimes, like against the Uyghurs, they're not even documented. There's not in any factual information about that. But this is, these are factual cases. These are people, these are living, breathing people that we can interview, that all of us can see and, and interrogate, and we can interrogate the situation. And, you know, these things, are, we're supposed to just ignore them. And we're supposed to ignore these people, and like, this, like this woman and her children, poor orphans who are being put out on the street. Yeah, and according to the United Nations, one-third of Palestinian homes in East Jerusalem do not have a building permit. And as a result, over 100,000 people living in these buildings are at risk of being displaced. And, and, you know, we have to ask the questions when we get information like this. Why do so many uh, homes in East Jerusalem not have a building permit Well, it's because those families have been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years before such a thing as building permits by the Israeli government that was established in 1944, that was 1954, that was imposed upon those people even existed. So so people in this country very often start from information like that, that, you know, so many people uh, in in uh, Palestine don't have building permits and they stop at, oh, well, if they just had building permits, then everything would be OK. And that's that is the wrong answer. And and. How do you see, uh, Esther, us being able to help people get to asking the right questions with this issue in particular? Because I feel like 
the reason, one of the reasons we we don't connect the issues of the infrastructure and the water problem and the uh, a racist police terrorism problem in places like Jackson, Mississippi, and everywhere else in this country uh, where these things are happening and are not being as widely reported, and what's being done to people in Palestine is because we 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 take the side of the empire. When it comes to the narrative about the Palestinian people and we immediately go to, you know, the law and order response. Well, if they just had a permit and followed the law, they wouldn't have problems. But but no, that that is that is not the answer, Esther. Right. And the I, I wanted to also add that the other reason why they don't have permits, you know, yes, some families have been there for eons, but also Israel won't give them a permit. Right. So it's like a game, you know. You go and you try to do the right thing, like you or I might go down to to DCRA and get a permit for something we want to do on our home or or whatever. And you know, you go through a process. Um, but when people go to try to get a permit, they don't give them the permit, right? So then they can say, okay, but but you don't you don't let that stop you from having a roof over your head. So if the person goes ahead and builds their home. Right. And then they can come along at any other time and say, well, you know, this doesn't have a permit. We're going to we're going to tear it down. So this is a type of inhumane. Um, These are, um, you know, this is this is barbarism, you know, and and, you know, the fact that our tax dollars are going to constantly prop up this uh, fascist, neo-fascist, uh, outpost, let me call it, they want to call it the only democracy in the Middle East. Hmm. It's not a democracy for Palestinians. And if it can't, it's not a democracy for the majority of the people in your territory. It's not a democracy. You know, you have people um, starving, dying, don't even have clean water or sewage in Gaza uh, as an open air prison, pretty much. You know, all kinds of uh, just concentration camp type of treatment of people. So this is this is just one more reason why, Jackie, we have to rebuild the BDS movement, mm. um, regardless of whatever uh, state uh, laws they're trying to pass, whatever they're trying to do in Congress, you know, hand in glove with this neo-fascist government. You know, we have to stand up because, you know, uh, I guess Fannie Lou Hamer said, you know, we're not all free. If one of us is free, you know, you know, not none of us are free. Right. Right. So we have to definitely uh, uh, point out this injustice because, you know, if, if they can do that there, it makes it easier to do it here, to do it on the continent, to do it anywhere. You know, and we see, you know, what they try to hide, like in Ukraine, they, they try to hide how the Ukrainians treated black people and uh Jewish people and uh, any any immigrant, they try to hide that. They try to hide that history of the Maidan in 2014 and everything that happened after that in terms of the 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 ethnic the the, the targeting of Russian speaking people uh, in the eastern Ukraine and how 14,000 of them have died since then. They don't, you know, it's 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 like on the DL, like you know, they always want this kind of genocide on the DL, right? And they don't want to talk about. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And I think that as the descendant of a people whose genocide was erased, Mm. when you when you I think that that's what 
that's what um, gets me because, you know, we always talk about the genocide of the Native Americans, the indigenous people on this continent. But when you enslave and kill the majority of a, a, a huge uh, swath of the people in Africa over centuries and, um, and, you know, erase their culture, you know, erase their humanity, erase their language, erase their customs, and not only just erase them, period, you know, you know, when they, when they die by the millions, then that is, that is genocide. And it's never really just talked about that way. You know, sometimes, you know, we, you know, we refer to the Ma'afa and we talk about that, but I think that's why I'm really, really conscious now of erasure because, um, you know, our people's genocide was erased and the Palestinian people are being erased. You know, the Yemen people are being erased. They're being made non-people, you know, uh, you know, they, you know, this is, this has happened, you know, so much in the past and it's ongoing and we have to do something. We have to, we have to, um, uh, reinvigorate the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement within our larger framework of movement work. And, you know, I agree, Esther, and it is within that reinvigoration of the BDS movement and, and not back down from defending that movement for what it is, boycotting, divesting and sanctioning a criminal government that is committing human rights abuses and an ongoing genocide against a people. We absolutely need to reinvigorate that that movement and to stand stalwart in defense of it and and in solidarity with the Palestinian people, because the more we peel back the layers of the abuses that are being committed against the people in Palestine, the more we begin to see the connections with the abuses that are being committed against the people in Yemen. The more we begin to see the connections uh, of of the, the, the abuses that are being committed against the people in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the more we begin to see the connection to the abuses being committed against the people of Haiti. And the more we see those connections there, we can understand that we are being abused in the exact same way. So when we stand in solidarity with the abused and oppressed people around the world in Palestine, Yemen, the Congo, uh, uh, in Haiti, we are standing up for ourselves. This is not a solo fight liberation. We don't get liberation for ourselves and then we can walk off the stage and everything's good. None of us are free unless all of us are free. That was the rallying cry. Then it needs to be the rallying cry now. But I want to thank Esther Rivera so much for joining me today. We are out of time for this show. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. And until then, be good to yourselves and to each other. Peace. By any means necessary.